we are experiencing a paradigm shift. A fundamental change in the way we usually do things. We are intentionally choosing to see the silver lining. Opportunity arises. We can shine a light on the things that weren't working well, on those things that weren't really working at all. We can regroup, reevaluate, and re-engineer. It's time to explore new patterns and paradigms. Those that inspire us to rise above the chaos and explore how the conditions of today can take us to a better tomorrow. Patterns and Paradigms, the Pattern Podcast, from Hudson Valley Pattern for Progress. You're listening to Episode 11, The Future of Transportation, with your host, Pattern President and CEO, Jonathan Drapkin. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Patterns and Paradigms. I hope everyone had a good but clearly different Thanksgiving. As we enter the holiday season, it's now more important than ever that you do not give in to COVID fatigue. Now what you do matters more than ever. Please follow the healthcare guidelines. Help is on the way, but it is what we do from now until then that will not just reduce the number of deaths from COVID, but the number of people that are impacted, the people that got sick, the people whose families are around those who are sick. Um, and it's not just those who are sick or those who have, you know, unfortunately passed away. It is the healthcare workers who go to work every day are exhausted at the end of the day and need the support of the community to reduce the impact on the system. Rhode Island's hospitals today were just uh, declared overwhelmed. Um, so please, please do your best to follow the healthcare guidelines and make um, the lives around you a little bit easier. If you have any questions or comments about our podcast, please send them to patternforprogress.org slash podcast. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast, which is available on Apple, Amazon, Music, Spotify, Google, and other sites that you may follow. In this week's Pattern and Paradigms Trend or Bubble, we continue to follow up on the emergence of electric vehicles. The Wall Street Journal recently reported that there are now 11 competitors to Tesla. The companies are not household names, so I will not read them all, um, but they're funded and backed by large hedge funds or major automotive manufacturers. One worth noting is Nikola out of Phoenix, which is working on a battery-powered semi-truck. To get a sense of how electric vehicles are becoming more mainstream, just look at the television ads for car purchases during the holiday season. More and more are mentioning that they have an electric vehicle. We see this as a slow-moving trend. To further this discussion and more about the future of transportation, our guest this week is my longtime friend, Elliot Lee Sander. Lee is currently the president of Bombardier Transportation Americas region. Previously, he was managing director, global transportation and U.S. Infrastructure at Hatch Limited, a global multidisciplinary management, engineering, and development consultancy. He has held senior management positions for the Hacks Group and at AECOM. And if that isn't enough for our listeners here in the Hudson Valley, Lee has served as the executive director and CEO of the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, or MTA, and is a past chairman of the Regional Plan Association, or RPA. But before I welcome Lee to the show, let me start by asking Joe Chaika, what's up, Joe? Hey, Joe, how was the holiday? Oh, it was pretty good. Um, it was a mixed bag, I got to say. You know, Thanksgiving is has always been filled with with family and friends and lots of eating, and this year was a little bit different. Uh, stayed home, enjoyed a meal, uh, but I did end up working all day Friday and Saturday because Pattern is just so busy. 
Well, Joe, I told you, you were supposed to take some time off, but I think the other part of this was um, you're not alone in terms of feeling that this holiday was different. So let's get to it. Even though it was a short week, um, Joe, we do these convenings and we have uh, at least five of them. Can you explain what we do? And in particular, maybe dive into a little bit about the mayor's convening. Sure. So every week we pull together eight mayors. And these are the mayors of eight cities in what we call the Mid-Hudson region. And it includes the cities of Peekskill, Middletown, Port Jervis, Newburgh, Kingston, Beacon, Poughkeepsie, and Hudson, way up north. And these eight individuals, sometimes it's the mayor, sometimes it's their um, their their manager, their city manager or city administrator, they love to get on the phone for us for about an hour um, on, on Thursdays. And we act as a sounding board in, in essence of, of hearing what they are dealing with on a daily basis. What are their challenges? What are their barriers? And we share our thoughts, but more importantly, they share their thoughts with each other. And these mayors are, are, are really a good, solid team for the Hudson Valley. And they, they think through all of their barriers and they come together and talk about solutions. So we are really moving the dial with these conversations. The other, um, the other sessions that we do get together with um, other professionals in the fields of economic development and workforce development, and even some town supervisors. They're very similar in nature. They don't happen on a weekly basis. They're either every other week or once a month. Um, and they talk about their challenges and barriers as well. And again, we, we help drive them to a solution-based approach. Uh, the planning commissioners would be the last group that we do get together. And they represent an enormous amount of information. And with the planners specifically, we like to gather as much information from them as they do from us, because then the benefit is really for the region, not just any one particular municipality or county. But it's a lot of fun. We we do this. We've been doing this since April. Uh, we're learning a lot. And I really think that they're learning a lot and they they just they just love it because during the week without a phone call they're sharing emails uh they're sharing phone calls on their for, you know through through their their own means and it it's really building a lot of camaraderie and really a strong region i think joe it's one of those human infrastructure items that we probably um don't talk enough about when we're out there uh explaining what pattern does, but the convenings are an essential part of trying to pull the fabric of different communities together to explain to each other, hey, I got an idea. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's really good. In particular, I've always loved when they talk to each other, especially the mayors, and they say, oh, I love the way you wrote that up. I'm going to use that in my community. It's these little things are, you know, and and that are so important, I think, for the region. And most people simply don't know that these conversations are happening all the time. Yeah, it's another great example of what Pattern does behind the scenes. And we're very impactful with these guys. And, and just like you said, when they share their stories and information, it really builds more than camaraderie. It, it builds a really good, strong a uh, strong sense of efficiency as well, because they're not duplicating the wheels for one another. They're borrowing the same information, not the same information, but similar information, and they're making their communities a better place to live. I, I think it, you know, and, and you lead a lot of these, and I think it's just a, a great um, way for uh, people to not repeat the same thing. They have it right in front of them. They know what another community did. They like that approach, and then they can do the same thing. Hey, Joe, you've had a week off from your housing uh, week, which I know takes it out of you. You spend all year formulating, what do I want to talk about at the annual housing week? And now with a week you know, distance, I wasn't going to ask you last week because I think <laughs> you needed the four days off, but with a week you know, behind you, any thoughts on, on you know, where you want to go next year or or are you still focused on 
there were some things here that really came up for me that I would like to address and continue the conversation. Well, I think that there were, there were a number of things that came up. A lot of things that we talked about really put a little bit more concrete into the forum in terms of what the challenges and barriers are in housing and specifically within affordable housing. But with that said, I, there, there's a number of things I'd like to cover um, and there are really highlights that we pulled out of this week-long conference. Um, and the next time I say I want to do a week-long conference, I need you to say, no, Joe, don't do not do a whole week. Just do two or three days. It's a, yeah, lot, of, it's it, a it, lot of work. It clearly seemed like that was, you were biting off a bit more. But your knowledge base is so big that when you said to me, I've got this idea, and you brought out your whiteboard, and you said, it's going to be housing week, and it's divided... I know that you could do this. It's just your own personal bandwidth. Yeah, bandwidth. It's fun, though. (laughs) I know it is for you. So any thoughts about where you want to go next or or what the focused areas should be? Yeah, so let me me pull out some of the highlights. You know, there's, there's, there needs to be, I think, a a lot of, in other words, to, to, to move the dial, there needs to be a lot of activities that happen. Now, some of the stuff we've heard in the past, but again, it was really put into concrete and, you know, just increasing the conversations, the presentations and the educational sessions on how critical affordable housing is to what I would say the overall health of the region, our communities, and certainly to the residents that live here in the Hudson Valley. That has to happen. It's a conversation that we've been, I've been having for over 30 years working in this, in this field. But the conversation that you have in 1991 or 1990 isn't different than the conversation <laughs> you have in 2020. Um, but they have to they have to keep going because there's new there's a new generation that comes into the field. There's new people that 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 are in the field, and there's certainly new naysayers in the field. Absolutely, um, you know whether or not the people are willing to put affordable workforce housing in their communities. That's right. The other the other big topic, and this was our first day, was was a conversation about home ownership. And overall, the rate of home ownership has declined quite a bit in many areas of the country and also here in the Hudson Valley. So I think it's time that we support the policy at the national level to create something called a home ownership tax credit program. And that's really to increase home ownership. And the reason I think we need to do this is there are a couple, couple of things. There's, there's upfront costs that are just simply prohibitive and are really a barrier to entry for many people, especially people of color. And with, with that said, there's, there's got to be a critical change to that dynamic because home ownership represents a lot of things but one of the key elements of home ownership is that it increases generational wealth and that is something that if it's not created an entire generation or an entire demographic can be left behind so it's it's really it's really important in our first day we we talked a lot a, a lot about that um you know now, Joe I I, I think it's important that our listeners understand when you and I get going, uh, our conversations, we could take up the whole hour here. That's right. And I know there's a whole list of things. My personal issue is we've talked about, can we actually do the calculus that's needed to drive the price itself of affordable housing down? And I'd love for us as an organization to tackle that one. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that's, that was the very next thing on our list. So cl- clearly you and I have been working together far too long because we can <laughs> read each other's minds at this point. <laughs> but, uh, you know, albeit rental or home ownership, the cost of building is just way too high. And why is that? There's the cost of land. There's the cost of infrastructure. Well, to have housing, you need both. Construction materials, specifically now, you know, as, as we're as we're wrestling and battling with COVID nineteen, the supply chain and 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 actually tariffs are really driving lumber costs up and other material costs up. In fact, National Association of Home Builders said the average price of a home has jumped by fourteen thousand dollars just because of material cost. Another big issue that we're dealing with here in the Hudson Valley is a labor shortage 
um, you know, there's no, there's no construct, there's no contractors, there's no plumbers and no electricians. And why is that? Well, they've left to go to other parts of the country because right now it is expensive to live here in New York. But the other reason they have gone is they're not learning how to do it. We need more trade schools. We need more apprenticeship programs and things like that. Um, high taxes, clearly, we have very, very high taxes, school taxes specifically. Two-thirds of your overall tax bill is from the schools. So those those are, you know, those are the, the costs that are really high. They're, the, the last thing I wanted to say about the costs, and it really gets to incentives, um, to drive down costs is very difficult. To drive down other operational costs is a little bit easier not quite so simple, but a little bit easier. And with stronger incentives and more subsidy from the federal and state governments, then you could drive down the overall cost. Because if the costs are high, somebody has to make it up. You're either a renter paying more in rent or your homeowner paying, paying more as, uh, as you buy, buy a home. Um, and there's a there's a lot of tools that you know we can we could talk about with local incentives and maybe we can get to that at another time because again we could talk about this for hours. I know we could, Joe. So thank you. And I think the apprenticeship thing really, as it relates to home building, is an interesting tie to an earlier podcast that we did on manufacturing, where they were saying we don't have enough people, and right. it, it's a common theme. And we're going to have to start to figure out how to get people from high school directly into a good paying job. So, Joe, thanks for being with us. And let me welcome our guest, Lee Sander. Good morning, Lee. Hey, welcome to Patterns and Paradigm. How are you doing? I'm doing well, John, and uh, really uh, great to be with you. Um, as the you know, impact of COVID and everything? Are you working from home? Are you still working, you know, in an office? Where are you? Where Actually, where are you right now? Bombardier is a uh, Canadian company. So where are you right now? Yeah, so uh, yeah, COVID has uh, impacted on us. So uh, I'm actually uh, in my house in Guilford, uh, Connecticut. My main office is in Montreal and before the pandemic, uh, would be there uh, every two weeks and then uh, on the road. And so, uh, you know, we cut the traveling down to about two or three months ago. Now we're traveling, visiting sites and clients um, uh, every other week. So we've, we've uh, brought it down a little bit because we also want to uh, find the balance between not going crazy and traveling, keeping safe, and yet engaging our front line. We operate and build trains. We operate the people movers at JFK, uh, at Newark, Atlanta, Denver, Dallas, and our workers are on the front line. So we do want to engage some. So we've been doing some traveling. So it's a mix. <laughs> All right. So um, I think this is what I want to do with our conversation, because there's just so many issues in transportation. And the podcast really tries to say, what is the future of everything? So today we're talking about transportation. And I thought I'd start with a little bit so that most of our listeners can um, establish, oh, this is a guy that knows about the Hudson Valley, New York. Then I want to jump to some of those questions about what Bombardier is working on now and some of the key projects you've been working on. And then we'll come back to a couple of more, more regional questions. So How's the MTA doing, Lee, given that you were chair and CEO when it was a combined position for many years? You know that institution very well. And the stories coming out of there, which are very important to the Hudson Valley, are um, concerning the certainly rail service, but the subways as well. So how serious is it? You know, I thought that when I was running the MTA from 2007 to 2009 under Governor Spitzer and Patterson, um, with the uh, deep recession having to do two toll and fare increases, uh, basically in the period of the year, that that would be the worst uh, that the MTA would have ever seen, uh, both before me and then going forward. I never thought that the MTA would face um, as apocalyptic. Uh, a situation as it does now. Uh, but the MTA is seriously at risk. 
Um, it has staggering uh, losses in the billions of dollars. This ridership, I think, is now maybe 20, 30 percent, depends upon subways, buses, commuter rail. Uh, interestingly, bridges and tunnels is not too bad as people are getting back in their cars. And so unless the MTA um, gets a uh, further bailout, they got a couple billion dollars this past year. If they don't um, uh, get a, a relief package in the billions from Congress um, and President-elect um, Biden, uh, then they have just said that they're going to have to cut back by 40 percent. They're going to be eliminating lines. It will have a dramatic impact both on the institution and the city and the region. So uh, the MJ cannot be in more difficult times than it is now. You know, I, I have tried to impress upon people in um, Patterns area in the Hudson Valley. This is, this is, you know, you may not, they may not have been happy about the payroll tax or, you know, do they get as much money back or whatever. I said, you do not want this service going away. This is the DNA of the infrastructure regarding um, transit. And um, I, you know, but but there are other things at work here, which are um, we're learning about remote work. We're learning about, well, maybe I don't have to commute every day. What would happen, Lee, if the, you know, Metro North line, every, you know, the money comes back, but the Metro North, the passengers don't come back in the numbers that they did. Do you think it's? possible or what would it mean to the whole um, structure of the budget if that happened? So, so Jonathan, you know, you make, you know, a couple of key points. I mean, one of the things that I've seen both in my public and uh, private and academic lives is the relationship of New York City uh, to the rest of the region, certainly to the uh, Mid-Hudson area, you know, that you represent, that you serve, and, and certainly to the East and Long Island, also in New Jersey. And as you know, you know, I um, spent a fair amount of time in the Regional Plan Association, which looks at the region from a plan perspective. And if New York City is not healthy, it has a drastic impact on the whole region. That certainly applies from Orange, Rockland, Dutchess, Putnam, uh, whatever. It also includes Connecticut, where I'm uh, in now. So, um, and so the MTA is, 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 is uh, synonymous in terms of the health of the city and the region. So first, you know, what happens if they don't come back? I mean, my sense, and no one has a crystal ball, I think my sense is that they will come back when you look at the human innate desire to connect, to be with people. What I see, what I feel, what I hear from my colleagues um, is that there will be desire to go back. Now, will people go back 100%, 90%, 80%, no one knows. My best guess is, you know, probably 80, 90 percent. I think there will be more working from home, but in a, uh, you know, uh, in a more limited way. Uh, There will also be public policy issues because a lot of people can't work from home. They're not in an idyllic situation. So there are public policy issues that may also drive government to further encourage that as well. What does it mean, uh, Jonathan, as you ask, you know, if they don't come back, you know, on Metro North, um, uh, obviously your service area or to the east on the Long Island Railroad um, or Metro North to Connecticut, um, it'll be highly problematic. Uh, I'm not sure that the viability, you know, of the region is the same if everyone stays home. I think it raises huge issues, also raises huge issues of equity. um, And then... um, not to speak of you know, climate change, which, you know, how this uh, relates to our profile from a climate change perspective, that's something to be explored. Um, let me also say, I don't think um, some decrease in, uh, uh, in growth in New York City is a bad thing. It was almost overheated when you look at what the cost per, you know, per square foot in the uh, midtown Manhattan uh, office environment to see some of that growth move to White Plains, uh, to Poughkeepsie, uh, similarly, you know, Stanford, Bridgeport, uh, New Haven, you know, that's probably a healthy thing. I think it was too overheated. So some leveling off of that, 
um, is a good thing, I think. The MTA was not able to keep up with the growth curves in terms of demand uh, when you looked at out over 25, 30 year planning horizon. So some uh, reduction in that growth curve in terms of passenger demand, uh, so it bounces out more, you know, between the, uh, throughout the region, the outer rings of the region, it's probably a good thing. Um, I think one of the things that people in the Hudson Valley, they have this image of the guy commuting to Wall Street. Yeah. The well, the, you know, as opposed to the fact that there are many people who use Metro North that are just basic hospital workers that get on that train to get to hospitals located in um, Westchester, in New York City. And that there is the sense of it's the average person, that frontline worker who also relies on the health and viability of uh, Metro North for the Hudson Valley. Um, let me let me get at um, congestion pricing for just one second. And there's one thing, Jonathan, one sure. thing that Metro North did an amazing job over the last 20, 30 years since its renaissance, you know, begun by Peter Stengel and Don Nelson and Howard Permut. Uh, with the reinvestment was the reverse commute. So the, the, the numbers that you have in terms of reduced commutation from people coming from Manhattan and Bronx up to Ide Plains um, and elsewhere was, has been very, very significant economically to the Hudson Valley. I believe actually it was White Plains and Stamford that actually have a commute, a reverse commute that is equal. It comes right. at different times, but so I think that people have to give the MTA a break. And with that, I'll give a mutual shout out to our, our friend, Pat Foy, and say we wish him his best. We know how much pressure he's under, but um, we know that Pat will be able to figure this out. Um, he's a, one smart guy and one good guy. But let, let's, let's go to congestion pricing. So a lot of people in the Hudson Valley probably felt that congestion pricing was another tax. You, you remember the payroll tax fight over, you know, throughout the Hudson Valley. Yet there are plenty of planners, and I will include myself as a, you know, I play one on TV, that looks at congestion pricing and says, this actually made sense to me that if you wanted to access the region's core and you wanted to do it by car, you were going to pay a bit more to do it. Right now, is it potentially a tool that could be used if we could get it through the Biden administration, which we, it didn't happen during the Trump administration, to help rebalance people from being in their car to say, well, okay, maybe I can go back on the um, rail lines, especially since, you know, the MTA has said they're safe. So thoughts on congestion pricing? Sure. I mean, I was involved in congestion pricing uh, you know, going um, a little ways back. I worked closely with uh, Mayor Michael Bloomberg when he proposed it. We came very close uh, in the state legislature with Dick Ravitch. There were several state senators who stopped it, most of whom went to jail, by the way, not for this. Um, uh, and then uh, you know, Governor Cuomo um, has succeeded in getting it done politically, which is an amazing accomplishment. Um, I remain a strong supporter of congestion pricing. Um, I think you need to get the approvals in terms of the timing to phase it, phase it in as when we have a vaccine as Manhattan and the rest, you know, the inner core and the rest of the region comes back to health with the vaccine. That'll take a couple of years. I think you want to manage how you implement congestion pricing uh, so it doesn't have a short-term uh, inimicable um, effect. But as you see the increase in, um, in car uh, usage, as I noted earlier, uh, with the MTA bridges and tunnels revenues not you know, doing pretty well, um, I think it needs to happen. I think it's as fair as you can be. You know, no one wants to pay for things. The key is to for people to pay for things fairly. I think for people to pay to um, uh, not use free bridges, I mean, it's essentially just evening out where you have bridges that have not been told as compared to the MTA bridges and tunnels and port authority facilities that are told. So it's just... Um, creating a little playing field for automobiles coming into Manhattan. So um, 
I, uh, you know, remain strongly supportive. It's also, I think, secondarily, although importantly, it's a revenue source uh, for the MTA and funding the MTA is always a huge challenge. There's a huge amount of debt. Uh, the whole discussion of financing the MTA is, you know, is another uh, related topic, but first in and of itself, I think it makes sense in terms of having the right level of automobile usage coming into Manhattan, and then secondarily as a good revenue source uh, for the MTA. Um, okay, so a couple of issues that we touched on that clearly affect residents of the Hudson Valley, but there are others that may not be so obvious. Mm-hmm. So maybe you can explain the term positive train control <laughs> and then explain its importance. You know, so if we're doing shout outs, uh, Jonathan, I uh, want to give a shout out to uh, my dear friend, one of my favorite board members, uh, Susan Metzger, who just uh, stepped off of the MTA board, just extraordinary uh, public uh, servant and just represented uh, Orange County and the Hudson Valley uh, so well. And uh, so uh, when I uh, was recruited to Bombardier um, and I walked in and uh, you know, uh, learned uh, that um, Bombardier in a joint venture with Siemens, we had the contract, have the contract to implement positive train control, the Metro North and Long Island Railroad. As your listeners know, there were se- several catastrophic um, accidents. Uh, you know, one S- like Spite and Dival. Spite and Dival. Right. One um, uh, in uh, Connecticut, too, where there was a fatality. Uh, I think uh, Metro North employee, but most importantly, the Spite and Dive um, event. And so as a result, Congress implemented this mandate that by the end of 2020, that positive train control, which prevents uh, uh, commuter rail uh, passenger um, uh, trains uh, from um, uh, having such collisions and, uh, and uh, you know, extraordinary loss of life. So we won the contract to do that. Um, We were uh, a little bit behind uh, the curve in implementing it. And uh, we worked closely with Susan, Pat Foy, uh, Ronnie Hakem, who was uh, managing director of the MTA, uh, Kathy Rinaldi, who's now the president of Metro North and Phil Eng, Long Island Railroad, to uh, turn that around and and implement it. And I'm pleased to say that the last MTA board meeting, Pat and Kathy and Phil, um, shared with the board that uh, that we will make that deadline, which in fact we will. Um, and so we're very excited about uh, you know, the increasing safety this will mean. And again, a shout out uh, to uh, Susan and her colleague, Kevin Law from Long Island, um, and really uh, spearheading, shepherding uh, that initiative uh, to make it happen. It is absolutely a, a, a good policy decision that, um, it's not obvious. You know, that's the whole thing about a lot of infrastructure issues. It's absolutely essential, but you can't see water tunnels. You can't see sewer. You can't see it. But um, as you know, that's where we met. So that would have been a long time ago where I was responsible for looking at New York City's crumbling infrastructure. And you were my mentor. So um, how is how is Bombardier doing with COVID? Um, I know that you operate a number of things. Has there been an impact on um, the lines that you operate to you know, JFK, Newark Air Train, et cetera? Yeah, so um, so uh, Bombardier uh, you know has weathered uh, uh, the COVID uh, pandemic uh, very well with our people. We thought we'd have to close. Uh, down our facility in Plattsburgh in upstate New York, which is a major supplier to the MTA uh, for commuter rail, has been for commuter rail cars and subway cars. Uh, but we were able to get through that through the heroic uh, uh, work of our people in terms of vendors, supply chain, and so forth. Um, we had a very challenging situation in JFK Air Train. Our air trains are the backbone of transportation at the airports, and so if they shut down you have a huge problem. And so um, uh, we came very close uh, in a couple of places where because of COVID and our people getting sick, uh, that uh, those operations were in jeopardy. But again, through uh, great leadership, um, we've been able to, uh, to, um, to maintain those and not have a, uh, a stop in operation. 
so, uh, you know, overall, we've done well. Obviously, the ridership, we operate commuter rail in Toronto, San Diego, Orlando, around the country. And similar to what's happened with the MTA and Metro North, you know, ridership has uh, you know, decreased uh, tremendously. Uh, we're about to be acquired, I should mention, by Alstom, uh, which is another very large uh, uh, manufacturer. And together with the new Alstom, uh, acquires Bombardier Transportation, which will occur likely by the end of the year, uh, by the end of this year or first quarter. It'll be the largest uh, Western manufacturer of, uh, of rail cars, subway cars, and also one of the largest operators of rail in the country. So Knockwood, we're, uh, we're doing okay, but we've taken our hits like everybody else. Thankfully, you know, uh, the loss of life that we've had has not in any way, you know, we lost one individual where uh, we believe that was some COVID, but nothing like the tremendous losses that uh, New York City Transit, I think Metro North also uh, uh, lost uh, some people or one individual as well. Well, thinking about the, you know, getting access to the airports, does plane travel come back? How much of a hit does it take? And where, where is the future of air going? I mean, you know, Thanksgiving, there was a bump, but clearly not the numbers from last Thanksgiving. Yeah, no, I think, you know, what, uh, what we see in projections uh, are that it's not anticipated that it doesn't come back till 23, 24. McKinsey's done some reports on that with the MTA and, uh, and uh, the Port Authority side of that or have their own. So it'll be a couple of years. Uh, the Port Authority has also, uh, I think for the first time, uh, requested uh, federal funding other than their ADAP funds, uh, their, their airport uh, runway funds. Uh, generally the Port Authority, because it says own revenue sources, has been free and clear of uh, taxpayer-funded uh, support, but because of this uh, again uh, cataclysm, uh, they also have a rescue. They are part of the rescue package in front of Congress to tune of several billion dollars, and that's you know real important. Um, uh, the Port Authority has proposed uh, to upgrade the people movement at Newark. I'm sure a lot of folks in the Hudson Valley you know go down to uh, Newark. And the air train structure there is quite old, and so there's a real need to modernize that facility. Governor Cuomo has put forward um, a similar proposal to create a uh, link for LaGuardia. And you have these major terminal projects, um, so um, we're supportive of the federal government, uh, including that in the stimulus infrastructure, stimulus package, if that occurs. The Port Authority has its uh, challenges. We've had to reduce some of our operations there. We're working closely you know, with the Port Authority as they get through this. The governor, uh, sorry, like the, the governor made clear just this past Sunday that he deemed the completion of the renovation of LaGuardia Airport, and this is two Queens boys speaking here. Remember, <laughs> LaGuardia is just being this, you know, what, what was it? Wait a second. Wasn't it Biden that referred to it as a third world, uh, a third world facility? I think that inspired uh, Governor Cuomo to then engage in the massive redevelopment of Hawaii, which has been really extraordinary. Uh, you know, for those people, I mean, people are not having a lot. Of, as I said, I'm now on the road, back on the road a bit, and uh, they've really done a brilliant uh, job. But yes, as you know, Jonathan, you know, the governor has said that it will not be complete until it has a rail link, and you know. Uh, I, I've been supportive of that project. I was supportive of it before I went to Bombardier. I remember when the governor put it forward a couple of years ago. I think it was at a New York Building Congress event. I was asked by the New York Times and others about it. You know, there's some folks who feel that because it doesn't immediately um, proposed um, alignment, doesn't head toward Manhattan, it connects to the number seven line, that that is secondary. But when you look at travel time, um, I think that uh, the governor's point and the portfolio's point is correct. All the major airports and major metropolitan areas do have a mass transit link. And uh, I think it's crucial for um, LaGuardia to have one as well. And I think that I, I agree with you, whether it's one, two, three, however many years it takes back, takes to come back, the amount of people flying will occur, therefore upgrading the facilities of Newark of JFK, of LaGuardia, and then having the rail links is ensuring 
that the infrastructure that is necessary for that um, is in place. And he, he actually deemed it an essential uh, infrastructure project just this past um, Sunday. But speaking of airports, one near and dear to the residents of the Hudson Valley is Stewart Airport. So maybe you can talk a little bit about your history with that airport. Um, it is uh, you know, part of your career. And then any thoughts about what, what we could be thinking about for Stewart in these challenging times? No, it's interesting. Um, again, I, just as a framework for the conversation, you know, you got to look at these things with a planning horizon of 25 to 30 years. Um, and number one, and number two, I am reminded, and some of my planner friends have reminded me, some of the discussion about will they come back, whether it's LaGuardia, uh, Stewart, what have you, rail, uh, also reminds one of post 9-11, where people did not think that lower Manhattan would come back. Um, but I think, you know, um, those who said that uh, the recovery may mirror what happened in lower Manhattan post 9-11, the more I see it, the more I'm inclined to agree. I think New York with a vaccine, uh, I refer again to the inner city and then the outer region, if you will. Um, uh, I think that they will come back. So you have to look at it with that framework. And I think the 9-11 um, uh, references um, is, is relevant. Then in terms of Stewart, um, it's funny, uh, Phil Plotch, uh, who used to work at the MTA and uh, is now um, uh, uh, an academic, uh, just wrote a book called The Last Subway, talking about the Second Avenue subway. But then he's now writing a book about the Port Authority, and he was asking me about Stewart Airport. And uh, I was saying, you know, Phil, I will step up and raise my hand and say, I had something to do with this. I'm not sure whether people are going to blame me. <laughs> and uh, I think he feels, and I think he's right, that in the long term, uh, I think the acquisition of the Port Authority, of Stewart Airport by the Port Authority was the right thing. But to answer your question about how this all happened, it was very interesting. National Express, a, um, a UK-based company, owned it. They were in the aviation sector. Uh, but because they were overexposed to the British rail market, when it then went through recession, they almost went bankrupt and they had to unload the lease uh, that they had um, won as a result of Governor Pataki privatization initiative, which is how, you know, Stewart Airport had initially been privatized and was being run by National Express. And, and I just happened to be at an event in New York uh, that the uh, CEO of, uh, I think, uh, Richard Balfour at the time uh, was, uh, was talking and talking about it. And as a pilot and having flown into, I forget if I met you uh, at Stewart Airport, I think I flew into Orange, uh, not uh, Stewart, when I, when I saw you, when I met yep. you. Pause for a moment there to explain that we have one of the strangest ways of meeting each other, that you are a pilot, you fly your own plane, and it was Montgomery Airport in Orange County that you say, hey, I'm going to take a couple hours and, you know, why don't we meet for breakfast or lunch, and I would drive and meet you there. That has to be one of the strangest ways of maintaining a friendship, but it worked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I flew into Montgomery, also Warwick uh, has a little strip I've flown into uh, again in the, uh, in the valley, Orange County. But in any event, um, you know, the, the Port Authority had always been looking for a, four, you know, for a fourth airport, if you will. Um, it was always, you know, the, uh, the need, the demand for it. Um, so when I heard about this, and uh, Elliot Spitzer, uh, was running for governor, it was clear he was going to be elected governor. He asked me to be uh, his advisor, his policy advisor in transportation while he was running, and then if I would run the MTA when he, you know, if he was elected. So, um, so it was in the waning days of Governor Pataki, of Governor Pataki's administration. So I called up my dear, dear friend, um, Bill Dakota, may he rest in peace, uh, who was director of aviation. Um, and I said to uh, Bill, you know, uh, National Express is trying to unload this, uh, uh, this airport. I just heard about it. Are you interested? And he said, yes. <laughs> he said, let me talk to my chairman, Tony Kosha, who's chairman of the Port Authority, who's now chairman of Amtrak, also a schoolmate of mine from Georgetown. 
Um, and um, we were able to um, uh, line up uh, the incoming governor um, and, uh, and uh, they then got back to National Express. And we created basically the, the political framework that allowed the Port Authority to acquire Sioux Airport. Um, I know it's uh, been an uphill struggle. To the moment, Sioux Airport is doing well, sometimes less so. Maybe again from a 25, 30 year planning horizon, we'll have rail you know, over connecting uh, to Seward Airport, which is not a difficult uh, uh, thing uh, to, uh, to do. Um, again, in a longer time, uh, time horizon. Uh, so uh, that's how uh, Seward Airport um, was acquired by the Port Authority. And I think at the end of the day, it's a, it will be a smart thing for that to, uh, for the Port Authority to have done that. So I, I, I completely agree. It's in the right hands and it's just a tough period that we're all going through, but um, it's in the right hands. Um, but it has been a struggle for them to figure out the equation for passenger. Um, as Amazon continues to colonize the world here, is there some common, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about how FedEx developed their relationship with Memphis and almost turned it into their complete central hub. Is there something, you know, maybe it's not Amazon, but, you know, right now they're, they're, they're building new facilities throughout the Hudson Valley. Um, If it wasn't passenger, I've always thought that a very, strong relationship with those people in cargo could possibly relate in lots of jobs, good for the Hudson Valley. Um, and, but it becomes a different kind of airport. Is that a model that could work or, you know, I've also, you know, what do you think? Like, could it work if it was like an exclusive hub for somebody? Well, yeah, I'm not sure it needs to be exclusive because I'm not sure that Memphis is exclusive uh, either, if I'm not mistaken. So I don't think it needs to be exclusive. I mean, I think an airplane is an airplane, speaking as a pilot, you know, I don't know when you're you know, using the airspace, whatever it carries, you know, it carries. But I think that's an interesting idea. And I think whether it is for freight or for passenger, I know the Port Authority before the pandemic was, uh, was trying to attract or tracking some lower cost. Um, international uh, carriers, but your idea about freight, you know, is a uh, interesting one. I'm not as familiar with the logistics of, you know, the air freight business, but I certainly think at the end of the day, uh, that is the highest use of that, uh, you know, facility. Um, let's bounce around to a couple of topics and ideas that are on my mind. And, and as you know, I, I am nothing if I'm not creative. That doesn't mean that I'm always right, but I'm creative. And as my law school professor once said to me, uh, Mr. Drapkin, that is extremely creative, but it's absolutely wrong. So let me test a couple of, of you know thoughts here. So the governor has moved ahead and the entire throughway system is now tollless. And it it means that you are entering at some point, exiting at another point, and you're paying for the use of those roads. Now, people in transportation have often said, well, hold on a second, you should be paying a lot more for the use of that road. Someone built all that infrastructure. Is this quietly opening a door for, what was I'm trying to think of the term, user fees for roads or something? Yeah. So opinion, thought? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, uh, I actually served on a uh, National Infrastructure Commission that Congress created looking at this because, as most people know, the way in which the interstate highway system, uh, you know, our large uh, great highway system, I mean, in some cases it had a negative effect when you blew it into cities, Robert Caro, uh, Caro, his great work on the power broker, but in large part, the interstate highway connection, you know, which is Broadway has been very productive other than its impact on central cities is funded by the gas tax. But as you move toward electric vehicles, non, you know, non, uh, um, uh, petroleum based uh, methods of, um, of uh, 
motorized uh, operation, you need to find a substitute. So it is really only a matter of time. And in fact, uh, the Highway Trust Fund is, is, is uh, going down uh, and really it will not have the means uh, to support the highway network. So we actually do need to uh, transition to another mechanism to pay for our transportation network. It shouldn't just, it should be, you know, it should be modally um, uh, neutral, you know, both transit and highway. Uh, but and that's what we do with MTA bridges and tunnels. MTA bridges and tunnels funds the New York City subway system. Um, so you have a relationship um, in the transportation system and network. But bottom line, we need to be looking at vehicle mileage, BMT, or what we call BMT, uh, you know, vehicle mile uh, travel uh, mechanisms, whether it's tolling, whether it's transponder on a car, or some other mechanism so that people can contribute in a fair, equitably uh, manner to pay for the system. And it does cost money to maintain highways, maintain bridges, and to uh, run transit. And I think that's a, you know, a good way of doing it. I do believe one should be transparent. I think trust with the public is crucial. So people you know, feel it's not being foisted on them. Uh, not that that's what Governor Cuomo is doing, but your question suggests that maybe people don't see that this is coming. So I think your point is well taken that you know, government can maintain the trust for the people it serves needs to be as fully transparent about these options and so on. Um, so, okay, you, you mentioned the gas tax. I believe it's somewhere around 1992 or 93 is the last time the federal gas tax. Under Governor Ronald Reagan, uh, President, <laughs> President uh, Ronald Reagan, by the way. Yeah, I mean, it hasn't been raised in forever and, and infrastructure costs money. And so, you know, it's it's a... It's one of those things that people generally think magically occurs and you have infrastructure. Now, you've raised an interesting dilemma here, which is it's been almost 25, 30 years since we've raised it. You could almost use it as one of the sources if you raised it by five cents right now with gas prices so low that people would hardly know it. And that could be the framework for helping to fund a national infrastructure bill, which we love hearing out of Washington. Do you think there will be A, an increase in the gas tax ever? It seems like it's the third rail, so to speak. No one wants to touch it. And B, a national infrastructure bill in the Biden administration. Well, there needs to be a national infrastructure bill. Um, I don't know whether, you know, the relationship between uh, Senator Schumer and uh, President Trump was an issue in not happening. President Trump said that he wanted to make it happen. It didn't happen as, you know, readers of uh, you know, uh, consumers of media have seen there were, you know, disconnects over uh, the tunnel, the uh, gateway uh, tunnel and so on and so forth. I don't know why there wasn't a bill. There should have been a bill. Um, so uh, one hopes uh, that there will be uh, President-elect uh, Biden having proposed a $2 trillion infrastructure bill. Well, that's a broader definition of infrastructure, including Wi-Fi and other things. But there is no question uh, that, as you mentioned, uh, you know, then Vice President Biden visiting Colin LaGuardia, a uh, third world uh, facility, our infrastructure is not competitive. It puts us at a competitive disadvantage with the rest of the world. We also have the issues of climate change. So I certainly hope that, you know, there is a bill done. That if Mitch McConnell, Senator Majority Leader McConnell, and if he remains that way after the Georgia runoffs, or wherever that plays out, um, that, um, you know, that they will find that, you know, as a common ground, one would think that would be. And then obviously if the Democrats win Georgia, you know, then I think there's no issue that that is going to happen. So we need to watch that space. Uh, in terms of, um, you know, uh, using the gas tax, again, I don't know with, um, as we move towards um, uh, other types of uh, fuel um, or power, you know, what the views are on, on the gas tax, where the most current uh, policy discussions are. Um, I know um, uh, President Obama chose not to do it. 
Yeah. Uh, I don't know whether he felt with uh, you know, taking on the Affordable Care Act that that was enough in terms of where he's going to spend his political capital. You know, I defer to you know more expert people on the political side in terms of what the equation is, whether you can actually do it or not. Again, I know it was President Reagan you know, who did the fast tax, but what we do know is that infra- our infrastructure is in horrible shape and it puts it as a huge competitive disadvantage and it means jobs and a, uh, and a uh, better uh, environment uh, with climate change, for sure. So how in general, I'm going to dance around the whole notion of electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles. I know that is not an area that you are an expert on, but you always, I always can go to you to say, what do you think? And, you know, so how does climate change affect transportation? And so, you know, the obvious may be an electric vehicle, but what else? What are we not thinking about? And have you had to incorporate it into Bombardier and all your other um, jobs in transportation? Well, you know, from Bombardier's standpoint, we have been um, uh, developing the battery train technology. We have that uh, uh, being demonstrated uh, in Europe. Uh, we're actually looking at its application uh, in the United States to replace diesel. So we think that also with some of the battery technology that uh, the province of Quebec that we have a strong relationship with, uh, that there may be something that we can do uh, potentially with the MTA uh, or with uh, New Jersey Transit. Those discussions are happening. I also note that our acquirer, Austin, has been um, uh, experimenting, developing hydrogen trains. So you have both of those technologies. So I think- could, could you explain? You know, I'm assuming you know what that means, and I may have some idea what that means, but for our listeners, so you mentioned um, uh, an, a, a, I always thought trains were electric. Never mind. What, um, yeah, what so is the technology it's, that. It's, it's, you know, for, so not, not to spend too much time on this. So most of the MTA is just as an example of the MTA, the service territory is in fact electrified. There are, large, there are significant portions of it that are not where you use diesel equipment. And so the object of the exercise is get rid of the diesel equipment. And you can either spend you know, hundreds, actually billions of dollars to electrify those parts of the network that are not electrified, or you can put equipment on um, uh, that are, that's not diesel. So what we're looking at, for example, with a battery train, is it, is it, is it putting in a battery uh, service territory where it's not electrified, uh, where it's not powered and you use the battery and you charge the battery along the alignment uh, so it operates basically off of the battery. Mm-hmm. Same idea is uh, for hydrogen. So the issue is not where you have you know, the network that, is, um, that, is, that has been um, uh, that is, uh, run by electricity, but it's run by diesel. So that's, you know, that's the uh, uh, basic uh, framework uh, there. And then you ask about um, AI. And so, you know, uh, artificial intelligence, which is very interesting. You know, we've been looking at, you know, very closely, you know, I ended up going on the board, not in any relationship to what happened with Stewart Airport. That was well passed, but I was recruited to the board of National Express uh, many years later um, uh, as a result of an American investor uh, coming into National Express, the Elliott Group, uh, and wanting to uh, broaden the uh, board. And so I've been involved. Excuse me, the Elliott Group is not you? No, it's not. Uh, <laughs> it's not me. Um, so um, in any event, uh, so, uh, and they then pulled out their investment, but I've been on that board for about 10 years. And um, uh, we watch the AI space because we are the largest operator of school, of school buses and coaches in the UK um, and uh, in Spain. And so the issue of Uber and Lyft and, uh, and what that marketplace looks like uh, and how that would impact our business. And also just look at it, you know, just as an individual. So I think the bottom line to the AI piece is that people expected to have uh, driverless cars uh, more uh, quickly than has occurred. It's proving to be technologically more challenging uh, than it is now. Uh, it posed from a commercial standpoint, you know, a very big challenge. Uh, I think Uber's, I was told that uh, some of the business model 
you know, of the for hire uh, businesses like Uber were based on ultimately transitioning uh, to not having a driver to uh, a driverless vehicle. But the bottom line to that is that it appears to be much more difficult despite the test beds in Pittsburgh uh, and, uh, and elsewhere is proving to be more difficult. Ultimately, I think in, in, in some areas, um, uh, there is an application for it, uh, but uh, it's not happening uh, tomorrow. So it's interesting. Do I think that that will change the fundamentals in terms of a metropolitan area needing to have a backbone of commuter rail and subways? No, I don't think it will replace it. So then... What will be very helpful when we talk about it is the last mile, where yes. you know, that is where you know, one can conceive of AI and now with an Uber or a Lyft uh, or regular taxis, you know, helping provide that last mile as parking is so much of an issue. Certainly in Westchester, I certainly recall my time at the MTA, you know, probably the most one of the con- most difficult issues is parking spaces at MTA facilities. It's actually one of the hang-up issues when we talk about transit-oriented development for right. all of the Metro North stations. Parking is in the top three issues um, that if you're going to create more um, living space where people going to park and it's still an issue. So then you think there's still going to be clearly this this period where um, you could be in an electric vehicle, but fully in control of it before we ever get to the AI version of the autonomous vehicle where there is, you know, quote unquote, driverless vehicles, that there's a couple of, you know, periods that we're going to go through in transportation here. I think that's more likely, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting. I mean, the, the, the technology has been, was driven transportation, changes in technology, going back to horses, steamships, the automobile, you know, the change in technology is what you really want to watch in terms of uh, what happens in the space. So, um, uh, yes, I do think that there will be a period where uh, they nail or, uh, industry or society nails um, the uh, propulsion, um, uh, the uh, issue of uh, transitioning from uh, fuel based to electricity uh, to batteries, what have you, hydrogen, um, before you, uh, AI is nailed. I'm not an expert on both, but from what we've seen, the prognostications that I've heard um, is still is more, I think, for the AI piece in a most broad-based application where you're, you're, you're able to have a vehicle that is able to sense pedestrians and not pose a safety hazard. It seems to be a more uh, difficult uh, lift, if you will, uh, than uh, implementing the battery or hydrogen or other forms of, uh, uh, of energy for uh, automobiles. So, Lee, we have time for one last question before we sign off. We're both sitting here. We're on Zoom. I notice you don't have a tie on. I don't have a tie on. You want to clear up why it was that when I showed up for my very first job working for Carol Bellamy with you, Dal Forsythe, Brian Fallow, um, and I was this kid from Queens, you felt it important to teach me how to make a tie. Because it wasn't my father, it was not my brother, it was Lee Sander who taught me how to make my tie. Well, Jonathan, I remain honored that I was given the opportunity <laughs> to um, to uh, show you how to um, uh, to uh, really uh, you know tie your uh, tie, um, and I wouldn't say it's one of my great uh, you know expertises in terms of you know the fashion industry or anything else. We just want to make sure that you had the uh, right, uh, you know, the, uh, the right presentation. Well, yes, I mean there are entire bro- programs um, for people dressed for success, and it was Lee Sander that caused <laughs> me to know how to dress for success. Um, this is patterns and paradigms. I thoroughly appreciate your time, Lee. It has been an incredible career that you have had with regard to all different aspects of transportation. And I appreciate you sharing your insights with our listeners. Um, Be well, enjoy um, the rest of this year. And 
let's continue to be optimistic. There's so many things that could happen in transportation. So thank you so much for your time. Jonathan, thank you for your leadership uh, in the positions you had and now uh, you know, for many years at Patterns. Uh, great to see what you're doing and, uh, and accomplishing as well. Privilege is mine. Thank you for tuning in to Patterns and Paradigms, the Pattern Podcast. For more information about this episode, visit our website, patternforprogress.org forward slash podcast.